0: is monica perez with our regular guest jeremy kuzmorov managing director of covert action magazine and author of several books including the russians are coming again the first cold war as tragedy the second as farce and i love talking to jeremy because even though our ideologies are far apart he thinks there's hope for government and i have given up all hope for government We both feel that in this age of corruption and collusion, we can find common ground. So we like to talk about things that we can agree on. And one of those things is false flags or fabricated atrocities. Hello, Jeremy. How are you doing?
1: Pretty good. How are you doing?
0: Very well, thank you. Sorry we're starting late, guys. I had a little technical difficulties in my new setup, but that's okay because we are going to hit the ground running and talk about... Uh, One of your latest articles, I can never keep up with all your articles. They're great. I love them. Easy to read, fascinating topics. And the most recent one really, or one of the most recent ones, really caught my eye because it suggested that Tiananmen Square was not... what you see is what you get, that the official narrative of that is not necessarily true. And I had always wondered, but never heard any evidence about it. And you read a book recently that lays out that and numerous other atrocity fabrications. Can you just tell us what book that is and then give us a little bit about the Tiananmen Square?
1: Sure. The book is called, uh, the author is A.B. Abrams, and the book is called Atrocity Fabrications, and it's published by Clarity Press. And it goes through a whole history, uh, of these, you know, false atrocity stories. Uh, I think the first chapter of the first world war, where this was exposed in a British commission that they had uh, fabricated a German atrocity in Belgium, and this was designed to whip up anti-German sentiment, you know, to support the war effort (coughs) And, and, you know, to make like Germany was just pure evil. Uh, you know, this was some kind of humanitarian intervention. When really, I mean, the British uh, was bent on sustaining its empire and, and helped to provoke world war one. Uh, and you know, it goes from there. I mean, that in almost every conflict up to the day, you know, we've lived through, uh, Iraq where Saddam Hussein typecast as you know, the devil incarnate. And there were false atrocities stories, including the famous story promoted by the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter where they were or the Iraqi soldiers were allegedly ripping off the incubators of babies, uh, and that was used to whip up uh, hatred against Saddam Hussein and support uh, the first Persian Gulf War in the early 1990s. And then you had, you know, false atrocity story involving Muammar Gaddafi, who was accused of giving his soldiers Viagra to commit mass rapes, committing genocide uh, that a genocide never took place. And in fact, it was the rebel forces that were carrying out atrocities, um, uh, while he was still in power and they were trying to overthrow him. Uh, so, you know, and there are countless examples in the book there, are the Korean conflict, you know, a lot of the atrocities were blamed on the communists. Uh, and in fact, it took a truth commission decades later to corroborate that I think 83% of atrocities in the war were committed by, by South Korean forces allied with the United States. In Vietnam, you know, Edward Lansdale, the CIA uh, psychological warfare expert who, uh, you know, spread stories. And they had this guy, Tom Dooley, uh, was a, a CIA doctor, and he wrote this book about how the Viet Minh were allegedly disemboweling women and describing horrific atrocities by the Vietnamese communists. And it was all a fabrication, and this was produced by the CIA. Uh, whip up hatred against communism and to build support for the U.S. regime change operation and military intervention. So there is a consistent historical pattern that he shows, and most of the facts are irrefutable. Uh, that the evidence he's presenting, and uh, you know, Tiananmen Square seems to fit in this paradigm. Uh, it was eye-opening to read his chapter because he's got a lot of evidence that nobody was killed. You know, they were peaceful protests in Tiananmen Square. There were a lot of students. uh, There were working people. And they wanted to kind of revitalize the Chinese Communist Revolution and to root out some corrupt officials from the Communist Party. But they weren't like uh, intent on violently overthrowing the government or anything. And, And the police, it was kind of a peaceful protest. The police did not react in a violent way. And many eyewitnesses said they left and they just left the square and it, it was peaceful and that it, the violence occurred away from the square. And there were some provocateurs, uh, some of whom were maybe trained by foreign intelligence service. And, you know, Abram described their ideology as very hateful towards China, their country. And they wanted to basically sell out their own country and its interests and welcome like foreign colonialism. Uh, and they uh, were provoking the police in clashes that were designed to engender a violent police response uh and so the chinese government could be discredited in world opinion and, and viewed as, as as uh you know butchers of beijing as they later called them by I mean, these provocateurs that staged these attacks so it has uh, you know it's kind of reminiscent of the gulf of tonkin incident in vietnam where they staged attacks uh on the north vietnamese to engender a North Vietnamese response, and they can claim that, you know, America was, in that case, it was an American ship they claimed was an attack. Uh, in this case, yeah, again, the the effect is for public relations largely uh, to present a, gov- a communist government uh, very negatively uh, So to support regime change operations that have been in place, really, I think the Abrams book goes into it in, in that chapter. The U.S. has been trying to overthrow the Chinese communist government since its inception in 1949, the 1949 Chinese Revolution. So uh, they would use these kind of techniques to lend support and legitimacy to regime change operations by demonizing this case, the, the Chinese communist government. But there were you know, dirty tricks involved, um, and it was an illusion. The, the uh, official view of history that predominates throughout American society in North America and probably uh, most of the world is really appears to be more of an illusion and a a false uh, historical narrative
0: okay so i have so many things to talk about with you on this front but i'm actually going to try to have some discipline and stick to the this one subject for now which is the Tiananmen Square which i also feel like um bears resemblance to the Hong Kong uprising a couple of years ago which i totally thought seemed fabricated and when you use when the National Endowment for Democracy, which is definitely a CIA front institution, it's hard to argue that it isn't, although everybody does not know that. Then, you you know, you've got to figure uh, U.S. intelligence is behind it. So, uh, but what I have a problem, and I'm wondering if you have an opinion if this has occurred to you, when thinking about China, if you read, like, uh, James Corbett had a couple of documentaries or a multi-part documentary on China and Rockefeller money in China that helped promote its tech, helped promote its defense, get it got it on its feet. I look at Nixon, my parents absolutely hated Nixon for opening China. My father used to rail against Uh, Giving them most favored nation trading status, which we gave them a huge leg up over other Southeast Asian countries. He also railed when they Withdrew when Carter withdrew protection from Taiwan and my parents would never buy anything made in China They really wanted to starve them. They would have loved sanctions, I think and I also see things like Event 201, which I'm not sure you're totally familiar with, but it was a scenario exercise in October 2019 that predated the launch of COVID, however you want to describe that, by only a couple of weeks. And the CDC uh, of China, the guy who was George Gao, I think it was, the head of the CDC of China, was shoulder to shoulder with the head of the CDC of the U.S. in in planning for a pandemic how do you reconcile in your mind all of those things that promote chinese interests and with the claim that we've been doing nothing but trying to undermine china all these years
1: um well i mean yeah there was a shift with the nixon strategy was a a big shift uh from the early years of the cold war yeah because i i reviewed another book uh that looked at these two pilots in the 1950s uh, uh uh Fekto and Downey, and they were both, um, one was a student at Yale and they, and one was Boston university and then they joined the CIA and they were involved in these clandestine missions behind, uh, you know, into China to try and foment uprisings against the Chinese communist government based out of Taiwan. Taiwan was really a base for these subversion operations. And then their operation went, went bad and they were captured and imprisoned for 19 years until Nixon opened, uh, China and restored us diplomatic relations. So, uh, yeah, in the first 20 years, uh, after world war two, until Nixon, they taught, uh, the U S was, uh, carrying out these covert operations and some was in Burma. They were running ex-Golman Dang agents. You know, the, the Chinese Guomindang was expelled out in the Chinese Civil War, ended with the Maoist and Chinese Communist victory. The U.S. in the 40s had been supporting the nationalists of, of Guomindang, led by Jiang uh, Zixir, Chiang Kai-shek. They ended up putting him in power in Taiwan. And that's a, a reason why the Chinese are so resentful Taiwan even today, because the U.S. Uh, you know put in power their adversary. And they viewed that as, as illegitimate in Taiwan as a part of China. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was going on. Then yeah, things did change a bit. And, yes, yeah, so of course, uh, over time, I mean, uh, China's economy really developed. And there was a lot of uh, trade between the two countries. Uh, and, um, you know, the U.S. was supporting Chinese economy in various ways. And then there was, some, I know that what I've looked into, there was some corrupt business in the Clinton years when you know some big uh, scale donors to the democratic party uh who were um, producing military technology uh, um, uh were able to maneuver it and sell china some major you know cutting edge uh, military technology uh that that didn't sit well with some people some accused clinton of being a traitor because there were violations of certain laws uh, uh that occurred so yeah, I don't know if that was not necessarily official U.S. government policy, but in that way, the there were U.S. companies helping to uh, build up China's military and give it a technological edge. Today, China, yeah, has a, a very strong technological, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say, well, actually, Abram, the author of the Atrocity Fabrication book, has another book about Chinese technology and the kind of race, uh, for technological dominance between the U.S. and China, and he gives China a great edge in a lot of areas, like artificial intelligence, uh, and certainly in uh, certain um, you know things like high-speed rail and uh, uh, civilian-based uh, technology, uh, you know, technology with civilian applications. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are Americans who did assist China to reach that level, or American companies. Although that may not have been official U.S. government policy, but there's always been an underlying hostility, even after Nixon. Uh, you know, success, the uh, successive presidents still had positive diplomatic relations like Clinton, but there was an underlying uh, animosity. And I mean, I studied in some depth the Clinton policy to China, and Clinton really escalated uh, arms supplies to Taiwan. And he was escalating support for the National Endowment for Democracy, which was operating in China, to support dissident elements in China uh, and intellectuals who are critical of the Chinese Communist Party, an organization that would produce reports highlighting human rights abuse in China. And that was part of uh, a pl- political agenda uh, to demonize or you know uh, paint in a negative way that the Chinese Communist government ultimately destabilize and undermine it. And the CIA may have been continuously supporting Muslim extremist elements in the Xinjiang province, as well as Tibet. That was an old Cold War operation to support a Tibetan Kamba uh, rebels. Uh, So I I think it's still been a fairly consistent strategy. And now uh, with the pivot to Asia policy, it's been more overt. Uh, open that the US is you know wants to undermine the Chinese communist government and currently encircling it militarily and even potentially plotting a war against it.
0: You know, I always go back and forth. I try to understand like the true nature of power on earth especially. You know, I, oftentimes it seems to me that things are like so coordinated at the top like event 1 vaccines, covid policy from From small towns to other countries, they seem to all be on the same page, even when the science could be ambiguous, you know, just to put it in the best possible light. And they still coordinate. So it gives me an impression that there is like a single central world coordinating power. But when, you know, you say these things and I think of these facts, I have to believe that there are competing factions at different layers here. And with China, for example, if, you know, maybe Some of these entities, private large corporations or, um, you know, cabals, they say the Rockefellers or or whatever, want to, and I would say the Bidens too, want to benefit personally from the potential of China. You can't can't sit around and wait. If you've got, you know, corruption to do, you can't sit around and wait to destroy China and come out the other end. You know, maybe the Rockefellers aren't aligned with the CIA all the time, although I would think they— They kind of probably sleep in the same bed like you talk about Clinton. Uh, Also, there is uh, the possibility that, you know, that you can't really have a Cold War unless the powers are balanced. So if you're going to arm Taiwan, you kind of have to also give kind of a backdoor of that advantage to China. Or or at, at the very least, that's one of the kind of conspiracy narratives of why Oppenheimer gave nukes to Russia if he did. Was not because he was a communist, but because the defense companies knew they couldn't c- keep the Cold War going with that kind of spending if they didn't have a nuclear enemy. So I don't know if that's too far down the rabbit hole for you. But and then I have one more thing to say about the Uyghurs.
1: OK, uh, well, um, yeah, go ahead with the Uyghurs.
0: So this supports your idea that the CIA has X plan. And it's a it's a quote by Graham Fuller in a book that I referred to previously when I was talking to you, Dollars for Terror, which is written by a French guy, and it was written in the end of the 1990s, so it was like pre-9-11, so you couldn't just dismiss it as trutherism or whatever. And Graham Fuller had a quote, which I remember pretty well, but I'll paraphrase. He said, It is time to activate radical Islam in Central Asia because it works so well in the Middle East for to help us control the oil-rich region because oil is peaking now. you know I, I think this was part of the narrative that the you know oil the o- peak oil was moving probably like there was more going to be more oil in Central Asia than the Middle East or it was becoming important. And Graham Fuller was the CIA chief of Afghanistan, I believe, but he talked about he said, we need to do in Central Asia what we did in um, Dagestan or Chechnya.
1: Yes, I, I think that's really a worldwide uh, U.S. strategy to use Muslim extremists. Uh, in fact, it went back to the 1950s. I read a book by Robert Dreyfus about called "The Devil's Game" and the U.S. and uh, uh, fundamentalist Islam uh, in the Middle East, or something like that. And he he he, he uh, discusses this conference at Princeton University where they brought these Muslim extremists from Egypt. And there are all these Ivy League academics and you know, CIA and high level State Department people. And they kind of <coughs> outlined the strategy that, you know, uh, of using Islamic elements to go after, you know, their big enemy was Nasser in Egypt because he was a socialist and he was uh, going to nationalize the oil. And he was building a, a larger, you know, he was a pan Arabist, the unity of the Arab states. They're uh, a socialist model. Uh, to counter Western empires uh he was unifying you know Egypt and Syria so um, their strategy yeah, it was to ally with uh Islamic extremists who were you know they were capitalists uh, and they favored. US business interests and they could be used to destabilize a country the US government didn't like or wanted to undermine and so Russia and China yeah those are the big enemies of the you know the u.s wants to keep Russia and China weak so they could dominate you know to be the a hegemon and you know they recognized that central asia as you point out is rich in oil and gas so and they'll use and they they and i think fuller admitted to the army of uh, jihadists in chechnya part of the attempt to destabilize russia and weaken russia and in china uh they supported the uh, islamic uh, extremists you know uh i forget the name of the uh revolutionary group that they called themselves but like east turkmenistan uh Independence movement and they were they were separatist and and jihadist forces in Xinjiang that were supported by the CIA to try and destabilize uh, China. And the the other part of the strategy is to support the dissident intellectuals uh, uh, to undermine your know, moral support uh, worldwide for the for the Chinese Communist government. And I think they've been doing that consistently, uh, yeah, since since 1949 because. The, the Chinese communist government, I mean, has taken on, uh, has, you know, autocratic elements, uh, absolutely. But China was a sick man of Asia in the 19th century. And, you know, you know the country was, was was weak. And the Chinese communist party, when they came to power, I mean, China has evolved under their rule into a major economic powerhouse. And is th- uh, you know, the key threat from the American point of view to the unipolar world order. So they're going to try and weaken that government, but it's been a failed crusade. And as uh, people I know who live in Southeast Asia and lived in China told me, you know, Xi Jinping has the mandate of heaven. It's been a tremendously, and they think of it in Confucian terms, and it, it's been a tremendously successful revolution in government that has catapulted China from, from sick man of Asia to where they are today as a economic powerhouse. You
0: know, just to... Talk about kind of the nuances of the competing forces. I seem to recall that the key to China surviving when the USSR fell, because at that time there were some pressures to kind of overthrow communism, obviously, but that Russia allowed political reforms before economic reforms and it just could not sustain itself or like it just that it toppled over because of that whereas China allowed economic reforms but not political reforms and that gave some prosperity to the people and that reinforced the security of that you know the people did not then want regime change because they felt that they were you know going to be able to prosper and but i would also say that that gives an opportunity when you're dealing with trade and you know, international financial capitalism, an opportunity for outside forces to benefit. So I I do think that there's probably kind of a long-term political strategy of the deep state in the U.S. and then also these global corporations that may have want to cooperate better as long as they can call the shots or make sure that it's within certain parameters. Have you ever heard of that Mao studied briefly in Yale and that the Ayatollah you know the original Ayatollah was in a, you know, at the Sorbonne or at a Paris commune of a Western style Paris commune. I mean, do you do you put any significance in the fact that some of these revolutionaries, you know, same thing with like Lenin and stuff, were in the West first? I mean, do you do you think that that suggests the that factions of the West contributed to the communist revolutions?
1: Uh, I don't know as much about that. Uh, I haven't heard that about Mao. Uh, you know, so, I mean, Ho Chi Minh was in France, but he, you know, and, and he also spent time, I believe in Harlem and he saw the injustice and actually it it made him a revolutionary because he identified with the oppressed classes, uh, in the United States. Uh, and that would probably be the case. I, I forget, you know, Mao, uh, life story and whether he traveled abroad before the, Communist Revolution, but you know it, it could have been something like Ho Chi Minh. Uh, I, I know that that experience by Ho Chi Minh. So, I mean, I think those revolutions were in reaction to Western imperialism and were anti-imperialist revolutions. I think at Nixon's strategy, in part, was to draw China into the world capitalist economic uh, system. And you know, after Nixon's opening, you know, Deng Xiaoping came in and reversed many Mao's economic policies, which were more uh, protectionist and, uh, uh, you know, st- uh, a complete command, state-run economy, where Deng Xiaoping uh, uh, introduced, uh, uh, you know, uh, liberalized the economy considerably, and China became more integrated into global capitalist system. I mean, that worked for a lot of foreign capitalists because they set up these... Uh, you know, zones where they could have, uh, uh, you know, these factories where they could, uh, benefit from cheap labor in China. Uh, so they were happy, you know, there was kind of accommodation with the Chinese government, communist government for a while. But I think at some point as China's economy really evolved and grew, uh, there was, yeah, and I think there are still factions in the elite. I think there are elements in the U S elite who would like to go back to the, uh, you know, Carter, Reagan, Clinton years when the U S had more or less cordial relations. although they were maybe subtly trying to covertly still trying to undermine and weaken them, but they, they made an accommodation and they had these, you know, very favorable economic relations. But you know, in, in the last decade, we've seen an overt economic war weighed by the U S on China and on various industry, like the semiconductor industry. Uh, and this past accommodation, you know, breaking down now. There's a strategy, more or less, trying to uh, de-link from China and and it economically, which is very different from the strategy from Nixon through Clinton and maybe Bush. Uh, and that's because I think that a uh, faction of the elite see the threat in China to the U.S. unipolar world dominance. But I think they're actually that that strategy is is foolish because I mean this uh, uh, China. And the United States became very interconnected economically. So, cutting off, trying to cut off China is actually bad for the US economy and China's growth. Like, I, uh, when I was writing a book on Obama, I interviewed uh, Charles Freeman, who's a very intelligent uh, man who was at uh, Nixon's, uh, uh, as a young man, he worked for Nixon. He was with Nixon on his first trip to China, and then he served as a US diplomat in many different positions. And he's a a very smart person who should have been in a higher position of power. Uh, and he said, look, China's, this is what he told me when we had a discussion. He said, uh, look, China's economic growth is not a threat to us. It's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity for more business for Americans, for American company that we could, we could harness their growth to our growth and we should not be trying to isolate them and provoking military confrontation. Which would be destructive for everybody and could cause you know, the only the And I think you've got an excellent analysis.
0: That makes me think that we can kind of circle the square a little bit in that I've always, or I ever since I read a book by Proudie about the JFK assassination of all things, which opened with this idea that once Magellan saw that the world was round, the Western powers could understand the size of the problem and think about or the colonial powers think about how to basically dominate the world and ever since then i've looked at these wars and especially foreign wars korea vietnam stuff like that as ways to introduce like on the one hand on the consumer side like mercantilism open up new markets to buy your stuff and then on the other hand open up markets to for really really cheap labor so like the west would be the middleman you know the traders right so I think it will validate the idea that we opened up China as a as a way to have both cheap labor and markets, not that you can actually control it. And maybe that's where the CIA political stuff comes in. It's like you want to you know what Nixon had to do what he had to do to create the opportunities for economic exploitation, if you want to call it that. And I don't even mean that in a pejorative sense, like just to actually take advantage of economic opportunities. But at the same time, doesn't mean that the CIA isn't going to work to control the political atmosphere. I mean, they do it here. So I'm going to predict that North Korea that we work. I think that what we're doing with North Korea is and I think Vietnam is a little bit like this, but it's probably too late for them because they're complaining about it. Is that the Western powers want to come in and build the factories there because the labor in China isn't cheap enough anymore. So the last places where, like, actual, you know, financial capitalism and and converting labor into money where they buy stuff, uh, that needs to happen, or whatever, the last place to exploit that cheap labor would be North Korea. And that makes me think about what Xi Jinping—is that how you say Xi Jinping? Whatever— is doing with the food. Um, So I believe that his focus on food security is getting farmers to raise food they need rather than food that's a cash crop on international markets, which would make me think that he's working towards either Chinese autonomy, which I think Mussolini actually literally called autarky so that you could be prepared for war by being able to feed your own people. Um, And so I just, I think that, they may be playing both sides against the middle, but I think that about North Korea, that they're going to want to get in there for the cheap labor and build factories there if they can ever break down that regime. And that maybe Xi Jinping is, isn't just purely in the service of the financial capitalism, as I may suspect.
1: Well, yeah, with North Korea, they, the U.S. has for 70 years been trying to uh, overthrow that government and establish what you, what you described. That's why the people have resisted uh, at a high cost, uh, because they want more economic autonomy and they don't want to be a dumping ground for Western products. And they, uh, uh, you know, what you call it just like a sweatshop, uh, for Western corporations. I mean, and now with the critique, uh, and I think some of the Tiananmen Square critiqued how China, the wall of the Deng Xiaoping had a kind of sweatshop uh, for Western corporation, you know, and the, and the labor standard was so poor and that's what they were trying to push improvement of. But I think, yeah, you explain why, what the people of North Korea do not want and why they would continue to resist.
0: But here's the thing, like, I totally understand that, you know, this financial capitalism, this international, I hate to even call it capitalism, it's cronyism, corporatism, whatever the corpo governmental continuum, I call it. But but you hear stories about life in North Korea as being horrible. And I've talked to you, several people who've gone to Cuba recently and say that the people are desperately poor there. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that I mean these are people I know looked in the eyes, went there, and they told me the same stories? And what would you attribute that to if not like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't I don't want the the world to be just one big market for, you know, Amazon. I just but I also you know, hesitate to defend these countries where I think the living standards are terrible. Do you think that's because of sanctions? I mean, that could be enough because you could call Sweden a socialist country and they don't have that problem.
1: I think it's a complex one. I mean, you have to look at the historical factors. I mean, Cuba and China pro- progressed tremendously uh, after their revolutions. I mean, during the, uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s, Cuba had some of the highest inequality levels, uh, imaginable, and it was just like a tiny elite and most of the population lived in other other poverty and misery. And then when the Castro government was more nationalistic took over, uh, uh, he, you know, instituted many policy that benefited and uplifted the population. I mean, instituted, uh, you know, I mean, he nationalized the industry, took over the large land of the States uh kicked out the mafia of the country and uh he used the revenues from the state uh, you know uh run industry and in cooperatives to fund health care to fund literacy i mean the literacy rate near hundred percent the healthcare system in Cuba is, is very advanced for the region and you know then compare Q and, and and all the indicators went way up uh after the Castro government took over. Now, I think, you know, the, the sanction as far as some of the problems today, I mean, uh, I would say yes and no. I mean, yeah, there have been mismanagement. Uh, there are, you know, problems with a uh, you know, more state-run economy. Uh, the sanctions are crippling. I mean, the Cubans will blame all the problems on the sanctions. I mean, I think there's some truth to that.
0: I mean, look at China in comparison. Like, if you look at, if you say Chinese com- communist, and so does North Korea and Cuba, why is China... Unbelievably successful.
1: <laughs> yeah, China is not really a communist country.
0: That's fascist, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, well, there are. I mean, there are uh, highly authoritarian aspects of it. But you know, as far as economy, you know, they develop more of a mixed. Uh, I mean, they have a mixed uh, economy that's uh, partially state-run, uh, that's open to private enterprise. I mean, and you know, a historian have analyzed that they were quite smart. You know, as the uh, many countries were liberalizing their uh, economies you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I mean, China made sure to do it in a gradualist fashion and more on their own terms. Like Russia, you had the shock therapy where they just pushed the rapid privatization as a whole corrupt process, uh, corrupt bidding process for the uh, formerly state-run industry, and that was terrible. Russia's economy suffered. Yes. We're trying China kind of liberalized on its own terms has developed a mixed market economy that uh, you know has its, its inequality and injustices but does work well on a macro and the comparative level. Uh, so, you know, countries have to find their own way. Uh, but, I mean, compare Cuba to, to Haiti, I mean, or you know, countries that uh, the U.S. was able to exploit and dominate in the Cold War years up to today or in Central America are much worse off than Cuba. Uh, because, uh, um, you know, Cuba, uh, asserted its independence and used the resources of the country, uh, to develop the, the country and to invest in things like healthcare and literacy and education. So, uh, I think Cuba is more successful than a lot of its neighbors and there are historical reasons why it's a poor country. Uh, and there are also, again, the sanctions have been devastating and embargo in embargo and in the Cuban case.
0: I did want to ask you one thing and then I want to move on to the Zelensky stories that, um, I, I actually did a couple of deep dives on the semiconductor situation between China and Taiwan. And I'll put that in the show notes and I'll put all the references to the books that you've talked about in the show notes at Monica's dot Can you tell me the name of the one about the two pilots who were imprisoned in China for 19 years?
1: Okay. Uh, yeah. I forget the name of the book. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really good book. Uh, it's by uh, Cornell University Press. Yeah, I can try to look it up online or quickly.
0: Yeah. Just shoot that to me and I'll put it in the show okay. notes. So, so let's um I want to talk about next article that you wrote about Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky came to power in carefully planned operation coordinated by Western Intelligence Services, says former U.S. diplomat. And he is super sketchy. And I know a lot of his backstory. I mean, the fact that this guy was a was a rags to riches or whatever, a a a high school teacher become president in a TV show, which reminded me so much of the whole Trump thing. Uh, so to me, Zelensky obviously was what I call a created person. And w- there's a funny parallel also with Trump in that Trump's first boss or most significant boss at The Apprentice was Jeff Zucker, who ran CNN when he was you know, rising to—because I think Trump is a created person, too— to some extent. Um, but with Zelensky, I think Kolomoisky, who you talk about as being the billionaire who's behind him, who people didn't realize, like he, he's not just some comedy actor who stumbled into the presidency that he's closely affiliated with this guy Kolomoisky, who literally has a shark tank in his office. I don't know if you stumbled upon that little fact, but I think he, um, was the, was the ultimate owner of the, media company that put on Zelensky's show. Like, I think that the people just ref- didn't even notice that that's how connected Zelensky was. But can you tell us a little bit about where where this information is coming from? And, you know, do you find it convincing?
1: Sure. At, at first, I found the name of the boy, John Delory, And viewers should check out this book, uh, Agents of Subversion, The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Cobra War in China. And it's Co- uh, Cornell university press 2022. Now, as far as Zelensky, yeah, I would recommend to viewers that they look up Scott Rither's film, agent Zelensky. And I was writing a review of that film in covert action magazine. And it's really a very powerful film, uh, documentary. I wish it, it could be more widely circulated and it points to, yeah, as you described it's, uh, basically it's a psychological warfare operation, uh, and, you know, uh, I actually would compare Zelensky with Obama cause, uh, you know, Obama, they were both heavily marketed, uh, uh, and they both had intelligence connection, you know, Obama has intelligence connection through his family and may himself be a CIA agent. Uh, and you know, he, uh, uh Leon Panetta said when he was president, he gave the CIA everything it wanted, uh. I mean, they marketed and packaged Obama, this, you know, candidate change. And they played up this family background that he was in multicultural, uh, background he was going to bridge, uh, you know, build this multicultural America, but actually it was all a lie. His real father was not even from Africa.
0: Really? You think that that wasn't his real father? I mean, I've heard that before, but I just never yeah. really believed it. Wow. So Marshall, you think Marshall was Yeah, there's
1: strong, strong evidence, evidence for that. In fact, Obama even uh, indicates subtly in some poems as as basically came out and uh, said that, yeah, Frank Marshall Davis was his real father and ah. that some kind of arrangement that Stanley Armored Ar- Dunham uh, made uh, with this uh, Barack Obama senior was uh, on a, a CIA State Department program because they they were supporting, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, young leaders in Africa, uh, who they would mold into, you know, future leader of the country who would be loyal to the United States or you know, anti-communist in the cold war. And Obama senior was, uh, Stanley Armour, sorry, Dunham senior was, um, you know, he, he himself worked for the CIA or some military intelligence agency. He was coordinating this exchange. And I think he helped extend Obama's visa in return for it was better to have him as the official father because no, the father wouldn't be raising the son. Uh, anyway, that's you can read about that in my book, Obama's Unending Wars. But my point, if you want to compare Zelensky, is it's a psyop of the American people because Obama comes from a CIA family. He was really had no qualification for the presidency. He was never even a good student. He was a a stoner in (laughs) high school and college. Somehow he got into Columbia and nobody remembers seeing him at Columbia. You know, every future president, you know, made his mark as a young person. Uh, They saw this is a future leader. You know, he's out, he's going to be a politician. He's already, you know, practicing and he's in student government and he's, you know, uh, I mean, Clinton was out there and, and you know, politicking in a young age. Nobody even knew Obama. Uh, and then uh, suddenly he writes a memoir at age 33. Nobody writes a memoir at age 33. <laughs> and he had accomplished almost nothing in his career.
0: But that's how he got money. And it kept selling and selling. I mean, that's why he made millions of dollars every year. I can, I yeah. think that was a pale and, and that
1: memoir was ghostwritten because Obama... The only other article they found by him was this clunky uh, article in a student newspaper. You don't just all of a sudden, out of the blue, write you know, beautiful prose. And they asked him, when did you have the time to write it? Because then he was like a state senator and he was working all day. And uh, he had a young family or something by then. And I was like, oh, I wrote it like uh, after midnight, you know? <laughs> you
0: know.
1: So he got no sleep somehow and he can churn out. I mean, the prose is nice. It's very professionally written by a guy never written anything and, and can barely string a sentence together. So yeah, it's, it's a psy operation and that that's what happened with Zelensky. They, they, you know, so they package candidate and these, what we see is the intelligence agencies running politics and it's all for show and it's all totally phony. Uh, and, you know, so Zelensky was, you know, this character out of this TV show, uh, who was going to, you know, promote, uh, reform and fight corruption, but it was just a facade. I mean, he was a corrupt guy in league with Kolmoyski. They had some shady business dealings that was exposed in the Pandora papers. They were offshoring their money. And then, you know, he claimed, you know, uh, yeah, as far as corruption, the film, as evidence, you know, and interviews Ukrainian government officials who say he's the most corrupt of them all, uh, and, and the, the film details some of the boondoggles he's presided over. And then, you know, he came in and said, "Oh, he's going to be for peace and uh, end the conflict with Russia," just like Obama said he was going to be. You know, pre- presented himself as a peace candidate, and then he escalated the drone war and invaded Libya. And you know, doubled down the troop uh, surge in Afghanistan and the uh, Syria, the largest covert operation in U.S. history since uh, Afghanistan or ever. Uh, and you know, Zelensky just uh, you know escalated the war against Russia, increased the bombings in, in Eastern Ukraine, claimed you know was going to take over Crimea, and uh, that he was open now to NATO expansion. You know, he was not saying that before when he was campaigning, right. one you know, said it when he came in, the guy that is just an opportunist, you know, he's on the cover of a Vogue magazine, uh, him and his wife, and they're being fed in all the capitals. And yet he's confined, uh, he's ruined his own country. The film goes into how the economy of Ukraine has collapsed, uh, uh contracted by at least 25%, uh, since Zelensky been in power in 2019. He's basically selling out the economy to foreign interests. BlackRock is like taking control of a lot of the uh, economy. Monsanto land is being sold to Monsanto. He was uh, quietly passing laws against uh, working people and unions. And then, I mean, he's sending young men to their death. I mean, there was the Minsk Peace Agreement that was a workable framework uh, after the, the Maidan coup. Uh, that would have granted some autonomy in eastern U- uh, Ukrainian provinces, but kept them within Ukraine. And that would have made sense for Ukraine. Now they've lost. You know, eastern Ukraine is very rich as far as industrial area, uh, at least historically, and has a lot of economic potential. And now Ukraine has lost a lot of territory because of Zelensky's action and refusal to accept the Minsk Peace Accord, because Russia said that they, fa- you know, Russia was willing and supportive of the Minsk process But, you know, Angela Merkel admitted, the former German chancellor, that the Western country didn't take it seriously and that it was just a ruse so they could buy time to further arm Ukraine uh, to fight Russia. And it shows they're using Ukraine as a pawn for their geostrategic games. Like what I was saying with China, they want to weaken Russia and China so the U.S. and Anglo-Americans could be dominant worldwide and control the oil and gas well of central Asia, and, uh, they're just using Ukraine and all those Ukrainian boys have died and many civilians, people have been displayed, the people have suffered tremendously and they've been used the whole time. And Zelensky at the film show, he was a traitor, uh, literally because the film showed that he very likely a British intelligence, uh, agents, because when he traveled to Britain. He didn't go see the prime minister, Boris Johnson. He saw Sir Richard Moore, the head of British MI6, which indicates uh, he's an agent. And Sir Moore is is found everywhere. Zelensky, when he visited the Vatican, Sir Moore was there. And there's some other British officials are always around them. And Zelensky's own bodyguards are not Ukrainian. They're wearing an upside down wow. Ukrainian fly. The film shows. And that's an act of treason, yeah. Uh, and Ritter said they could be shot uh, normally, but they're not because. Uh, so he's really, um, you know, he's sold out his own people and confined his own people to misery uh, in the service of, of foreign powers. So uh, you know, it's a deadly game he's been involved in. But it's entirely an optical illusion. The the uh, image they've created for him is this Winston Churchill type figure, but that mm-hmm. breaks down pretty quickly. When you hear him speak, I mean, he's a crude guy. He's not exactly, uh, you know, very eloquent during a speaking. Uh, when you hear him up on the rostrum, it's like some crude guy comes up there and Ritter uh, uh, says he may be a cocaine addict. He's constantly twitching his nose.
0: I've heard that. And they say that about Obama, too. Yeah,
1: I, it could be. I don't know for sure. But it, the film shows him as like always twitching his nose. So that would be a sign of a potential cocaine addict.
0: Well, I absolutely see the parallels with Obama, and I don't know what the attitude is of the people there now, if they can see through it, but I believe that Obama was elected because of the hope and change thing. People just wanted to put an end to race conflict. They were just sick of it, felt it was something of the past, something that we could put behind us and build on, and were willing to make any sacrifice necessary, and— Uh, it quickly went downhill. I remember very distinctly that um, Eric Holder said, you know, we need to have an honest conversation about race. And I was like, oh, that would be so great, you know? And then his answer was, "No, we can't, we need to have trouble. Like, there's, we need to have, um, you know, there has to be conflict. There's no way to resolve this. I mean, it was really, really crazy. And you could see some behind the scenes stuff like that too. But With Zelensky, my impression was that he was elected because the people were absolutely sick of the conflict with the Donbass. They wanted um, to—they wanted to resolve that peacefully, and he came in and absolutely, just like Obama, took an opportunity to make race relations better in this country, uh, he—and instead made them worse— that Zelensky did the exact same thing so people were absolutely ready to resolve the conflict and uh, he betrayed them 100% and i just wonder if you got a sense from this documentary if the people understand that because when i see somebody with i was at church the other day and the and the singer the cantor had a music stand that had the the ukrainian flag on the back of it which to me does not symbolize support for the east it symbolizes support for the western installed government there and I was like, they're murdering people. I thought that she's on the altar with a symbol of murder, and it just the uh, success of the propaganda is unbelievable. But I wonder if you think the people um, are have been brainwashed over there and actually support him or what?
1: Yeah, yeah, And I experienced the same thing as you. And yeah, these, these religious institutions uh, that are supposed to be moral places are often uh, the most fervent uh, champions of the Ukrainian you know, cause. Uh, cause what? I mean, that's a government dominated by, by neo-Nazi elements, and it's even reported in the New York Times and then they're embarrassed, well, we have to try and hide the Nazi insignia because that's bad for public relations. Well, why did they have Nazi insignia in the first place? That's a little bit disturbing. We're giving billion billion dollars in money. I know why. Why?
0: They had to have it because they could not get they they always talked about when Victoria Nuland organized the coup, they talked about how you could control different factions of the population and get support and whatever. But in the end, the Azov Battalion was there because the regular soldiers would not go and kill the Eastern Ukrainians. Exactly. They needed people who were super hyper-tribal in thinking to separate even to sub-unit you know, the Ukrainians themselves because the the rest of Ukraine was not yeah. willing to kill their... Their brethren, even if they were more Russian or from, you know, a different part of the country, it it took it, it took Nazis.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and I mean, this is somehow the great moral cause uh, to support Nazis in Ukraine is we truly living in an Orwellian okay, no. world, uh, the Twilight Zone, uh, and you know, it's a manipulation. I would describe, and they can turn this crude guy who sold out his own people and really seem to have few redeeming qualities as a leader into the reincarnation of some of the great leaders in history. And they can turn Obama with a stoner pothead guy, uh, a CIA guy, uh, into <laughs> some kind of, uh, you know, champion of, of human rights. Uh, they can do anything. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, if people in Ukraine are thinking clearly, I mean, I think they've probably been whipped up. I think, uh, you know, when their individual grievances, I mean, the Russians, you know, may, you know, have committed some uh, atrocities too. And I mean, they're, uh, you know, uh, probably subjected to daily propaganda that blames Russia for, uh, all the, uh, problem, in the war and all the catastrophe. And then, I mean, look, Zelensky has banned 12 opposition parties, taking complete control of the media, um, and, and, people, you know, the war environment don't think clearly. So, but I would imagine more and more Ukrainians are going to turn. I mean, I, you know, this counteroffensive is going nowhere. And at some point, you know, Ukrainians are, are not going to want to sacrifice their lives. And they're going to mutiny. I mean, that happened in World War I. Uh, it happened in the Vietnam War with American soldiers. Uh, when the soldiers begin to sense that the cause is hopeless and they're just being sent to their death. They, I mean, there is a human instinct to, to live. And they're not going to just willingly go to their death, and they're going to uh, turn on those who, who would send them there. And that's happened before in history, and I, I expect that to happen because this counteroffensive has failed, and is, you know it's going nowhere. And these soldiers, they can ship more to the front, but they're shipping them uh, to instant death, and, and the people are going to revolt. And you know, Zelensky, uh, give it some months, he may not be safe either, because uh, people will see him as a traitor, and somebody will take him out at some point as retribution uh, for the evil that he's done, and the suffering and death he's bestowed on his own people.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if the Western powers who installed him would be fine with that, because, you know, you know, Who wants loose ends? I honestly think that. I think there are many examples of people who are assassinated who were cooperators. But uh, one detail that I was uh, curious about in the article was that he gave Pope Francis something that had a satanic image on it. Or what was that? Do you know what that was exactly?
1: It's in the film. I believe he had some Nazi insignia on his shirt when he met the Pope. And that was a, a direct insult to the Pope. I, I believe that's uh, what, what was portrayed in the film.
0: Okay, so this says what Zelensky gave him was an icon of the Virgin Mary holding the child Jesus, but Jesus was depicted only as a black outline, which the Pope could have interpreted as erasing Christ from the cross and denying his resurrection. So, anyway, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> that I would be totally offended by that. Uh but I'm not sure the pope would be. That's that was my other stumbling point. It's like I'm not 100% sure the pope is uh what you see is what you get either this pope. But um okay, so yes, I was surprised that uh, I had only read this once ever was the Warren Harding the theory that Warren Harding was assassinated and if I recall correctly, you had never heard that before either, right?
1: Yeah, I have to thank you, uh, for alerting me to that and uh, sending me this book on the strange death of Warren Harding. And then there was an article I found online, uh, by, I guess it was a, a descendant of the innkeeper where he stayed and they recounted some very fishy things because uh, Harding died in, in San Francisco, uh, at a hotel and the, yeah, the descendants of the owner of the hotel. Uh, had some stories to tell about the strange thing and the strange behavior of Florence Harding that made her look guilty uh, and the covering up uh, any attempt to investigate uh, the, the death. So, um, you know, that, that article kind of reinforced what this book went into. And it was based on, there was a, a private investigator named Gaston Means who, because Warren Harding was having all the uh, an affair with a, a I think Florence Harding had hired him, but, um, uh, he ended up telling the whole story. I guess he knew all the inside scoop, uh, on the Hardings and he ended up writing his tell all memoir, uh, and they tried to discredit him by saying he was unsavory character and uh, prone to lie, but he knew certain intimate details about the Hardings, uh, That would indicate he was uh, telling the truth about this, and you know the Harding was a very corrupt administration. I mean, we think things are bad today, and I think certainly they are, but uh, unfortunately, um, uh, there is a historical pattern of corruption in Washington. This is not the only corrupt administration uh, or corrupt era, and you know the Warren Harding was a very corrupt administration. He had the the, you know was known as the Ohio Gang because I think. Harding himself was the impression I get of him. He was this tall, good looking man, but he was like a very, uh, simple guy. Just like, you know, I guess liked to enjoy the good life and he enjoyed playing poker and he was not really a, a high intellect or a good leader. And he had all these, you know, friends around him who were corrupt and just out to make money. They were known the Ohio gang. And they were connected with the standard oil dynasty in Ohio, which was, you know, Harding had been a newspaper publisher in Ohio. And, uh, yeah, he brought with him all his cronies from Ohio who were connected with the rockefeller the standard oil dynasty. And they made, they used their position and power to uh, carry out all kinds of illicit dealings. And it ultimately led to the Teapot Dome scandal, which was one of the biggest scandals in American history prior to Watergate. In which cabinet-level officials were uh, convicted of accepting bribes from oil companies, including one in Oklahoma for drilling or, on federal land, you know, for uh, drafting legislation that would allow them to drill on federal land. And Albert Fall uh, was one who was convicted, uh, but there, uh, all of Harding's associate uh, associates in the Ohio gang were involved in these kind of scandals and bribery and corrupt illicit dealings. And there were some, you know, suspicious deaths, uh, during Harding's presidency. And you know, when some stuff was about to come to light, some people, you know, suspiciously died, And one they accused of being committing suicide, but he was shot like five times. <laughs> and they said like, Oh, he hated gun. He was like, never touch a gun. And he didn't know how to handle a gun. And in no way he would have killed himself. So this all preceded Harding's own death. And the scenario presented by, I guess, Noon and other books is that uh, there's one, not many books, but one or two on this topic is that the, uh, Florence, because Florence had always looked at, she was more like a motherly figure to Warren, who was this kind of playboy. And he had the affair with this younger woman, uh, and Burton, but Florence kind of looked over him like a mother and she had a lot of his business affairs <laughs> I don't know he newspaper rather newspaper there. And I think she applauded his political rise to power, and then you know she saw the, the where the wind was blowing, and that he was about to be undone by all the scandals in the administration, and he was going to be not just impeached, but maybe uh, put in jail and totally his reputation totally ruined. Uh, so she actually, in his benefit, you know he was uh, getting ill, and so he may not have had a lot of time left to live, anyways. So, to avoid him being indicted and the humiliation of public exposure of his role in the Teapot Dome and other scandals, she mercifully slipped <laughs> his drink and uh, put him to sleep. And then they claimed it was a heart attack, but there was a cover up of the scene. And then this hotel innkeeper descendant uh, described it uh, that she made sure, you know, she controlled everything after uh, he passed away. and, the body was embalmed very quickly and there was no investigation and all the papers were destroyed. Uh, any evidence was destroyed by her. Um, and she died a few years later, but you know,
0: so, first of all, this is a little bit of a spoiler, so if people are listening and like House of Cards, just don't listen for the next 20 seconds. So, House of Cards, I don't know about the American one, I never watched it, but I watched the British one, it was one of the best, probably the best TV I've ever seen in my life. Did you ever see that one with Francis Urquhart, the guy's name was there?
1: No, I watched the American one, and actually, uh, this uh, reading about this almost reminded me of that show. And it's like something don't change. I mean, we think we've evolved, you know, since. But I think human nature is what it is, and uh,
0: but in the English version, in the end, the wife does do that for that reason. He was like, "How are we going to get out of this?" When she's like, "Oh, I have a plan." Yeah, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> we can. She keeps saying we can be safe still, and that's what she means, and that's what she does. But I, I want to say in defense of Warren Harding, and then I'm going to read a passage from your article that I always liked Warren Harding because regardless of the corruption, no one-on-one petty corruption, no personal gain could ever compare with what I think he did in service of the country for maybe for, um, bad reasons. I don't know, but I think the powers that be, uh, ushered in the great depression in 1929 orchestrated that crash and wanted to use that to institute some, um, You know, more controlled economy. And I think Warren Harding wouldn't let that happen. He kind of went with the laissez faire attitude and it bought another 10 years. And I think Calvin Coolidge followed in his footsteps. Also, I like this is that when people say that women getting the vote was like the beginning of the end for this country because they're a bunch of socialists. Uh, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge were the first two presidents elected after universal female suffrage and they won in the two biggest landslides in presidential history and they were the ones who I think from a laissez-faire or classical liberal perspective kicked the can on the Great Depression so I will defend them for that you can respond and then I'm going to read an article a uh, passage from your article
1: Well also Harding did free uh, he was you know so, uh he supported, you know, the U.S. constitutional rights to civil liberty because he freed Eugene Debs, you know, and he obviously didn't agree. Debs was a Socialist Party leader who had been jailed by Woodrow Wilson uh, because he criticized Wilson's war policies, and you know Harding uh, freedom because uh, he uh, understood that Debs had the right to his views under the U.S. Constitution, and that it was unjust injustice to jail, and whether he agreed with his. You are not. So uh, I would give him re- uh, respect for that.
0: And for the for, you say he proposed a reduction in military spending, withdrew US yes, troops from Cuba and the Dominican Republic, Republic, and oversaw the Washington Naval Conference, in which the world's major powers agreed on a naval limitation program.
1: Yeah, so he was a true conservative. Unlike the neoconservative, he was not a neoconservative. He was true to his conservative principles of limited government, including trying to limit uh, military intervention and he cut, cut, cut off some, uh, imperialistic type interventions in South America. Uh, so yeah, uh, he would be a precursor to figures like, uh, Ron Paul or instead of their, uh, uh, Robert Taft. Uh, and yeah, I, I think there are some admirable quality, but I think he was himself, uh, he was not like that great a leader. Like his, his intellect wasn't that high. Like right? the impression I got of reading several biographies of him was that he was just like a kind of good time, Charlie. And he was a very, very good looking man. And he very, he looked presidential. So they said that when he died, or actually they said it was almost like when Abraham Lincoln died, that throngs of people came out, uh, to pay their respects. And, uh, He was well-liked because he came across very well publicly and he was a good public speaker and good looking, but I think he was rather shallow and that's why he was uh, easy to manipulate by his wife and others around him. And that comes across like when he was a senator, they said he sponsored like, 30 or 40 bill, but they were all just like, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, there should be a national holiday oh, pilgrims day or it was, it's like not so <laughs> or as there should be more
0: roads in Ohio.
1: <laughs> yeah. He would never like take on any controversial issues. And, uh, you know, he just, he wasn't, uh, you know, a fighter for social justice or he wasn't really like a high intellect. He was just, uh, I guess, uh, he liked playing poker and he liked trapping the power. But his wife was con- manipulating him, and and all these people around him kind of used him for their own ends. So, and that's. Do what, you think he was ooh, murdered? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Do you uh, think he was murdered?
1: The evidence, yes, I think so because wow. you know, the evidence indicates that because of uh, especially what, what what the means book shows and what this uh, the evidence from the uh, hotel owners and what they said and how uh, Florence Harding. Uh, blocked any. Uh, she was behaving as if she was guilty because she was trying to block the investigation and cover up what yes. happened to him. So that that had the appearance of somebody who's guilty. And then she destroyed all his, all the papers after uh, after his death and the funeral. She went home back to Ohio and Coolidge took over the presidency. She went back to Ohio and they saw her burning all these papers at night, and she was covering the tracks of all the scandals. Uh, and the murder. So, yeah, I think there's very strong evidence that she was a murderer for the reason we've described. And, yeah, these TV shows often capture, you know, I think historians are sometimes lulled to get into this side of history, uh, but but TV shows present it often quite accurately. uh, Whether it's in a different era or not, these things have happened. And these kind of women do exist who are, you know, really, uh, able to manipulate their husbands, you know? And I mean, in many ways, she's a precursor to Hillary Clinton. She has the same kind of personality because <laughs> they said Hillary Clinton managed Bill Clinton like, his whole career. She controlled him and, and everything he did. And then she was maneuvering for her own, you know, with a feminist movement, she had the opportunity to one day become a president herself, which Florence in that era didn't have, but. I, I see them as the same type of uh, personality, and uh, they are kind mean, of these scheming, controlling uh, women. Uh, there were certain redeeming qualities about her. I think she was a very popular first-rate lady and very strong personality and very, very smart woman. Uh, unlike, again, Warren was just more like a shallow guy, whereas she was very intelligent, uh, but she had a scheming, manipulative side to her. But in a, in a way, she did a service to her husband because his legacy would have been much worse. If he lived longer and had been brought down in these scandals, he, uh, he would have been ruined and he would have been considered among the worst, most disgraceful presidents. Where now, as you point out, he has some uh, respect from the public and uh, he's viewed maybe in a mixed way, but not entirely negatively as far as his legacy.
0: And then after the fact, it is, I think, pretty widely accepted. Maybe I'm wrong, but that basically every president since JFK has covered it up, covered up any kind of, um, you know, any theory other than the lone gunman. And some people, I think like Nixon, for example, would argue that it's bad for the presidency. It's bad for the country. You don't actually want scandals like that to come out because it undermines the offices and so even if you're the political enemy it's important to keep that stuff under wrap which i you know we could get into that i think that um the impeachment of clinton on the sex thing i've heard was retaliation for the iran contra thing because the idea was look we all know we do these things from covert action to covert sex and this is stuff that we just don't put out into the public eye and then you know there was a kind of breach of that during that era in the 90s and the 80s um, but i could see how that that would be true and still never come to light really
1: yeah i mean i believe they've been covering up for a 100 years that harding was murdered uh because yeah they they want to pr- uh, uh, Sustain the illusion of American exceptionalism that American democracy functions uh, uh, very effectively and that it's only in other countries you have palace coups and these kind <laughs> of yeah. you know, backstabbing intrigues and infighting that leads to, to coups and uh, democratic transitions of power uh, and then this doesn't happen in the United States and that's why for some you know, Jan- January 6th was such a shock but in reality if you look scrutinized the country's history it's not so different from other countries and this this backstabbing uh goes on and these uh assassinations go on they take place and it's not just a peaceful transition i mean it very likely lyndon johnson killed uh (laughs) john kennedy so (laughs)
0: I would say I, ha- I have to say this: that I think January sixth was an atrocity fabrication. I'm not going to put those words in your mouth, but either way, it's about yeah. the, a manipulated transition of power. Either way, well,
1: yeah, I think there was. I agree with you that the FBI. We don't know all the details about January sixth, but there are indications that there was a covert uh, mm-hmm. operation in place there. Uh, I was talking about the public perception of it. Yes, it was shocking uh, to a lot of people. But, uh yeah, if you study the history closely, you'll see that, uh, many presidential transitions, yeah, have not been clean. And, and Harding is one case with Coolidge. And that was uh, engineered by his wife, the Lyndon Johnson, you know, JFK. And there are other ones you could look at, uh, or, well, you know, there are a lot of manipulation that go on. I mean, even Nixon, like, uh, he committed treason, he, he blackmailed South Vietnamese to sabotage the peace accords so he could win the 68 election. Because if the Vietnam War was going to end, then uh, oh, yeah. Humphrey oh. probably would have won the election. So, you know, if they're not doing assassination, they're doing something illegal to give an edge to themselves. So it's not exactly pure democracy. And then you, you get the money element in politics and how that helps rig it. And all of a sudden, you know, America doesn't look so much better than other countries, even though, you know, America goes out and says, oh, we're spreading democracy, you know, with this self-righteous veneer that they're going to go around the world spreading, the you know, American style democracy. But if everybody understood that America, American democracy, yeah, uh, is not uh, exceptional and has, you know, serious, uh, uh, problems, uh, they, they, well, I mean, I think many already see through the veneer, but uh, more would they knew the true history.
0: Even me, who's like totally disillusioned with all of this, like it, it, it bums me out to think of the U.S. as like a banana republic, which in a lot of ways it is, like literally run by corporations at this point. But I would defend the American experiment in that I do actually, even though I gave up completely even on the Constitution, I do think that it's a corruption of the system that's so bad, and not the system itself. And I've and I have, I, you know, I, I do feel like the scales have fallen from my eyes on all of that, and it is a shame. But I, I wouldn't give up completely on, you know, a, a written bill of rights. And I think that the answer is really to restore the integrity of the system. And instead of just being completely hopeless about such a system being possible. And this is coming from, you know, an evolving (laughs) anarcho-capitalist, you know, uh, philosophical agorist, but I still feel like it may be, you know, the best thing you're going to get if only we could
1: keep it. Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. But within the framework of the system...
0: Oh, yeah, no, it's not working.
1: (laughs) Yeah, probably the a good mooring that could uh, enable a very well-functioning system, but then you have, you know, Individuals who will uh, still, even within that uh, system, that, that is good. I agree. There's, there's sound structures uh, that uh, can, you know, uh, be a huge check on some of the abuses and, and corruption, uh, and and should be, you know, uh, reinvigorated in order to uh, uh, prevent those uh, abuses from being, you know, continuing.
0: That would be great. So on that positive note, that hopeful note, that idea of, you know, it's not all, all I don't know, all hope might be lost, but at least there, there is, I mean, we can agree that those frameworks and the rights are, are worth, worth talking about, worth defending. So I'm looking forward to our next conversation, which I hope will be about Clinton's CIA roots. You think? So when's that going to be ready?
1: Sure. Well, you yeah, know, I have a new book uh, coming out. It should be out, uh. I don't know the exact date. If it'll be in November, uh, it might be in November, uh, but yeah, that, that book goes. It, it's on Clinton's foreign policy and how Clinton set the groundwork uh, for later foreign policy disaster. Like it was Clinton who pushed NATO expansion, you know, in the nineties that ultimately created a new Cold War with Russia and led us into the mess we're in today. It was Clinton who invoked the weapon of mass destruction in Iraq and set the groundwork for the invasion of Iraq. And he, he bombed Iraq and he imposed deadly sanctions on Iraq as part of the regime change operation against Saddam Hussein. And he, he really started, I mean, Reagan started, it, but he took the ball with the war on terror and he established a lot of those odious practices, uh, like extraordinary rendition and use of drones in the war on terror. Uh, that really started with him and his administration was also as totally contradictory because they were supporting jihadists in, in, in the Balkan conflict, uh, just like we were discussing earlier in the show about how the U S and CIA have done that in China and Russia and Clinton's administration supported jihadists in the Balkan, against Slobodan Milosevic, yeah. who they were undermined. Uh, so. Yeah, Clinton was, uh, I, I, the book uh, looks at his foreign policies, but it also it starts by looking at how he was recruited into the CIA in 1960, in you know, the late 60s, and he was recruited with Strobe Talbot, was his roommate, and Strobe Talbot was one of the godfathers of Russiagate, and he was a deputy secretary of state in the Clinton administration. It, it, as a young man, you know, they were both students at Oxford, and uh, yeah, Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, although he never actually got his degree because he was accused of sexual, uh, he was accused of rape while a student. Whoa. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> then the evident that indicates he's a, he's a serial rapist who would bite the lips uh, of the, uh, women. That was his trademark, uh, to weaken them. He bit their lips. And, but he was recruited, uh, you know, the more I, uh, researched him, the more of a horrible human oh being I God. learned is, along with, uh, Hillary Clinton, the, the staff, because the first chapter was going to, he yeah, had that history because that kind of sets the groundwork for his presidency. Cause the '90s was actually a turning point. Like with the end of the cold war, you had even establishment figure like Robert McNamara was saying, well, now's the time for a peace dividend. The Cold War is over. We, we don't have to spend so much on military anymore. Let's spend that money on healthcare and education. And it's time for a peace dividend. But Clinton ended up, uh, ramping up up military budget and, you know, he invented like the new humanitarian pretext to go to war. And that actually drew support from liberals like in the Vietnam era, liberals, um, people on the left, although they were also libertarian, but liberals were strong opponents of the Vietnam War. But by the nineties, you know, Clinton knew this rhetoric to say, oh, we're stopping genocide and we have to act, or else, you know, it'll be a repeat of the Holocaust. And a lot of liberals bought into it and ended up supporting uh, Clinton's military intervention. A lot of the Republican and conservatives were opposed to it. And that was similar in conflict like Libya, where conservatives opposed, uh, and liberals were favoring it. So he, yeah, he was really a hawkish president. And yeah, he had that background. Hammond and Strobe Talbot recruited uh, to, in a mission to smuggle Nikita Khrushchev's memoirs out of Russia in the late 60s. Because those memoirs you know, denounced Stalin, and that was just, oh, his PR wow. for the Cold War.
0: Did they do it?
1: Yeah, I believe he did it. And Strobe Talbot uh, 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 translated them for Time Magazine as he worked as a reporter for a period for Time Magazine. And then Clinton oversaw the Muna drug smuggling operation when he was the governor of Arkansas. There was a massive criminal operation to smuggle drugs and arms to the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, who were fighting the left-wing Sandinistas. Um... And, uh, they smuggled a lot of drugs and they laundered the drug money in, in Arkansas banks and Clint oversaw that and blocked law enforcement investigations to make sure, uh, that this, uh, operation, uh, continued and that nobody was, uh, sent to jail for it. Uh, so he was a very corrupt, uh, governor and, uh, they were evil people. And Hillary, like the, the guard staff said, you know, the people who are like uh, security guards and. Around the house, worked for in the governor mansion. Uh, one said the devil's in that woman. Like you know, she was the boss, like the boss of everything. And she was very bossy and very cold and calculating person. Uh, and she worked for the Rose Law Firm, which did a lot of the legal work that enabled a lot of the drug uh, drug money laundering. So they're both, I think, very corrupt figures. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, his presidency was, I think, set the groundwork for many foreign policy disasters. And, uh, it was, it was, yeah, a very corrupt, uh, presidency.
0: Well, I can't wait to hear some of the details of how that stuff worked and some of the evidence that you came up with and what you think the implications are because yeah, I'm with you, but, um, I have. I have like a whole shelf of books when they're all done of this Clinton stuff, the two boys on the tracks. I think it's called the boys on the tracks. I've got just a few things. So I'll be ready for you in, in October, yeah, in
1: October, November. Yeah.
0: All right. Awesome. Well, it is always a pleasure talking to you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for your time today. Jeremy Kuzmarov of CovertActionMagazine.com. You can find all the links of everything we've talked about on Monica, Steve Dives, uh, .com And Thank you for being here, Jeremy.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you all for coming. This has been uh, a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez.